Welcome to Think and Act Differently, the modern mining podcast. I'm Katie Humes, founder of Think and Act Differently. In this episode, we'll learn about the role of culture and capability building in unlocking innovations. How important is leadership to creating this safe environment? With me is Lady Alvareda, Insights and Capability Transfer Lead at Think and Act Differently, and Michelle Ash, Executive, Advisor, Chair, and All-Round Technology Extraordinaire. Welcome. It's great to have you here. Hi, Katie. It's great to be here. Hi, Katie. All right. I have to find out a little bit more about both of you. Now, Lady, you've been on quite a journey to get to the role that you're in today. I'd love to hear, how did you end up where you are today? And tell me, did being a pro speed skater actually help you get there? (laughs) That's a good start, actually. I actually started in mining about 11 years ago. I came to Australia three years before that. And the reason I came was just because I wanted to study English for six months. And I got my return ticket back to Colombia to work in an oil and gas company. And here I am (laughs) after 14 years with married, two babies. And so it never happened. I decided to to do a master's degree in project management. In one of the lectures, we went to a job fair. And then there I met that lovely lady that was actually the HR manager for Os Minerals. That was in 2011. They were looking for engineers and also for women to try flying and fly out in Promeny Hill. I went to Promeny Hill. I worked there for five years in different roles, but in continuous improvement with Open Pit. And then with the processing plan, um, there was a lot of restructure, so the changes. So I've been lucky enough to actually experience many parts of the operation, so it has been amazing. After that, I took one year off maternity leave, and then I there is one person at us, I will mention the name, but he had a lift of uh, faith in me and said, you want to come and live in Adelaide if you don't want to do flying out, fly out anymore because of your babies, but it will be a career change. Are you okay if you try in HR, human resources? So it was quite a shock being engineer to HR. It took me a while, but I think that has been the best decision I have ever made because I discovered a passion that I didn't know I have and a skill that I didn't know I have. Obviously, I learned along the way. Long story short, I was in the HR team and then I moved West Musgrave. And then in the last year, I moved to the transformation team with you, Katie. Well, we're very happy to have you here. Do you want to just quickly touch on your speed skating? Because I know everyone's going to want to know now. I started skating when I was eight. And then I achieved a couple of medals. One of them was in France in 2001. I became world champion. And I have another like silver and bronze medal as well. And then I repeated that the following year in Colombia. So it was amazing to be able to be a world champion in your own country. I managed to do my university and also professional skating all the way. I have to say that it was tough, but actually that gave me a lot of determination and adaptability when I came to Australia. The language, I didn't know anyone. I had $1,000 in my pocket, that was all, and two suitcases. So yeah, it has been amazing. I, and I have found many, I would say, angels in Australia. This is the lucky country. Fantastic. Your determination is going to come out in droves today. I know it. Speaking of determination, Michelle, you are someone who has had passion, drive, commitment and loyalty to this industry for longer than I think anyone I know. Tell us a little bit about you. 
Gosh, a little bit about me. There we go. That's a that's a wide open field. So uh, so let's stick to mining, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So I've I've been in the mining industry now for thirty years, and it is an awesome industry to be part of. I've loved every single minute of it. Not only because I've met amazing people across different countries, different continents. And we have done fantastic things in terms of, you know, whether it's blowing a mountain apart and moving <laughs> it piece by piece, or whether it is uh, implementing automation and AI technologies, or whether it's touching the hand of somebody who's passing from HIV, but you can at least give them a comfort uh, in a community that we've been working in. And I think, you know, what I love about the mining industry is it touches every person every day. So whether it's just that you brush your teeth and use fluoride or whether you have a smartphone or you know whether you live in the remotest of remote communities and uh, able to gain employment, get power, you know everybody is impacted by mining and I think that's both an exciting privilege but also a a massive responsibility. And that's why I'm even more proud of being in the mining industry at the moment because now is the time that as an industry we can really shine because the world needs to decarbonise and we need to do so in a way that 8 to 10 billion people can be part of that journey and no one is left behind. We need to do that in a way that doesn't break the planet to create the decarbonisation. So, so now is where we can be thought leaders. Now is where we can radically change the way we go about mining and do so in a significantly more sustainable way. I could not agree with you more. Now, I know that you mentioned 8 billion people that are impacted by mining. Is that about how many horses you have at home these days? <laughs> very, very close. I've got nine and I'm about to get another two. Uh, so uh, we will have 11 fairly soon. So I, I actually work so that I can uh, keep them in the manner in which they're accustomed. Fantastic. I can't wait to hear them come up throughout this uh, series today. <laughs> I want to start with you, Michelle, on something that really resonated with me when we started working together, and it's this word collaboration. It's so overused, and yet it's so important and often not done well. Can you share with our listeners today a little bit about what collaboration actually means to you and and maybe how we should think about it more in our workplaces? Collaboration is a word that we often use, and it is fundamentally important, not only to the way you innovate and we can innovate and we can rapidly innovate, but you know, to the way we function functionally in teams and and in organisations. And I think often collaboration gets mixed with anything from hanging out in the same room as somebody else and therefore, you know, I'm sort of collaborating or at least sharing a space right the way through to what I think collaboration really is. And, And I think where collaboration hits, the rubber hits the road, is when we are actually prepared to give up something that we want or something that could benefit us for the benefit of others. That's when you really get collaboration. Why is that then so fundamentally important to innovation and you know progress? Because you, you have to be sort of selfless. You have to have that humility. You have to have that ability to sort of understand and listen to others and the needs of others and the greater good of what we're trying to achieve and be comfortable to acquiesce things that you might want to achieve or your views or your thoughts or your ideas to those of others. And it's tough because we all have things that we want to achieve and and all things that we want to get done. 
And sometimes it's hard in that fog of taskness, of wanting to get a task done or wanting to get something completed, to take that time to sort of reflect on those relationship aspects, reflect on the business model, reflect on the possible outcomes of some of these sort of journeys that we're going on to really then sort of go, well, okay, hang on. There's a moment here where I actually now realise that I have to give something up. It's like that sense of loss almost, isn't it? That You have to actually know what that feels like and, and how to work with that. Lady, I'm wondering your perspective on this because this is not something you can teach in a textbook, being able to collaborate or even look into yourself and think I'm ready to give this up. I'm sure you've come across this in your career. There is a say that um, if you want to achieve something individually, you can go faster. But if you collaborate and go with others, you can go farther. So that's exactly for me, collaboration. And I think Michelle said something very important is that everyone got something to achieve as a professional, as a person. And some people are determined to get what they want to get, right? So in innovation, if we don't collaborate, we don't get that diversity of thought. We don't get that challenge to challenge to each other. And we have experienced that amazingly in the transformation team when we get together in the groups and from everyone in the world. And you're trying to find a happy medium. That's collaboration. And I think Michelle said, you have to be able to compromise something yourself in order to collectively go farther and bigger. So lady, how important is the ability to ask questions in collaboration? That is something that I'm very passionate about, right? Um, I think the power to ask open questions, it is incredibly impactful in a group. You can see just the face, the face changes when you ask an open question and completely change people pose, people rethink. Sometimes we assume that we know what the other person are going to say, what are going to respond, what everyone is thinking. But sometimes it's good to step back, reflect, and ask an open question where actually go curious. Like, excuse me, can you please go explain further? This is what you mean, and not assuming anything. And I think we have experienced that a lot in our team. It's something that I'm proud to be part of, to be in a room where everyone is curious and ask questions openly, not just a yes and no answer. And actually that provides inclusivity where you can feel and test that the room is safe to trial and, and fail if it's possible. Michelle, is that a, a skill set that leaders find easy, should I say, to, to ask open questions? So look, I think some leaders find it really easy and others not. So I think one of the challenges as leaders, and especially as we, we come through organisations. So most of us have started as you know engineers, supervisors, we've come in superintendents, et cetera, in mining anyway. And at a certain point in our leadership journey, we absolutely have to accept that we are no longer going to be the technical expert. And we have to I'm not develop... sure if I ever was there, Michelle. No. Was that... <laughs> well, I'm not too sure either. <laughs> I, I, I started as a blasting engineer, you know, like... Uh, and uh, I've got some some uh, very exciting stories about seeing the uh, results of my uh, labours, or in fact the labours of others, and, and just my drawings scattered across the Pilbara, where they're sort of you know trying to find the iron ore that's left at the end of it, or you know other ones where it's sort of whizzing around your head, and you're going, 
do I move? Do I not move at this point? You know, which is actually the best option? Um, so you, I've had a very exciting uh, opportunities, but but I, you know, I think one of the traps that we fall into as leaders is, is trying to be the technical expert. You know, as soon as you try to be the technical expert or think that you're the technical expert, your ability to listen, your ability to ask open-ended questions, your ability to engage other than to listen for the error in somebody else's argument diminishes rapidly. And so I think, you know, as leaders, if we can cast off, and and it's really around having confidence, I guess, in our leadership capabilities, which are really around, you know, listening, bringing people in and out at the right times, getting people to build on each other's ideas, et cetera, as a way to get to the best solution. And, And that takes some confidence. You know, we often talk about wanting diverse teams and diverse thought right up until, as a leader, somebody starts disagreeing with me, you know, and then then it's not so comfortable. You know, then then my my desire to truly have diversity is really tested. And it, it's the same thing with giving up this need to be the technical expert and being really much more comfortable that you can use the wealth of experience, wealth of ideas in the team. And and that's when that ability to really ask open-ended questions, because the, the challenge with open-ended questions, of course, as distinct from closed or leading questions, is you don't necessarily know the answer that's going to come out of an open question. And that's the terrifying thing for a lot of leaders, and that's the bit you've got to give up and allow the process to, to drive the outcome. So that not knowing the answer is fundamental to uh, why we all work in this space we work in because we we're curious we ask questions we we want to find answers Mm. do organizations allow enough time for people to respond to those questions when they don't know the answer ah you know i think organizations do whether humans in the organization do is a completely different matter it's an organisation is such an amorphic thing, isn't it? It's like saying the company, mm. it is a collection of human beings. And, and I think, you know, most company process or organisational processes give you plenty of time to explore solutions, explore answers, you know, think about things differently. It's the humans within that structure that don't that go, well, you know, we, we put artificial barriers on ourselves that say, well, you know, we have to have this solution in a week. And you go, well... Do you? So there's there's not only that issue around us putting artificial deadlines on ourselves, whether it's in a meeting, whether it's in a, you know, any of these sort of processes. And then the second part, I think, is not thinking about how we're going to get to the solution enough, you know, and you go, well, okay, well, I want to get to a particular solution. I mean, we are time bound, so I'm not suggesting that, you know, we're completely open-ended. But sometimes it's also around, well, how much time am I going to commit, let's say we've got six months to come to a solution, how much time will I commit to the planning part of this process versus the doing part? And and I think that's the bit that we sometimes get wrong. Both ways, you know, some organisations plan, 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 and then leave <laughs> so little to do that they're suddenly going, oh my God, it's, you know, like battle stations. Um, and then, you know, the other way around, you see a lot of organisations that lurch from one implementation to another of something because the the planning window that they're leaving themselves is so short that they haven't thought through all of the potential challenges that they're going to encounter. So they get to a point where they sort of go, oh, bugger, this isn't going to work. So we'll try something else. And, you know, it's fine when you're doing that 
thoughtfully and it's around experimentation and it's around, you know, minimal viable product and, and we're sort of, we're pivoting, testing out unknowns knowingly. It's different when you're sort of just doing. And, and I think if you can be thoughtful about how much time we're going to allow in that six-month window or six-week window or six-minute window, planning versus doing based on the complexity of this problem and the potential complexities of the solutions at the end of the day or the need for buy-in to get the solution implemented, et cetera. So there's all sorts of different facets around that. But then I think we have more chance and opportunity to get it right and to have that time to have those reflective, open-ended questions, et cetera. And, and I think that the other component is trusting that we don't have all of the answers necessarily and that's okay. Because I think the, you know, the bit that we didn't talk about in terms of collaboration is it's, it's not only challenging to get individuals to collaborate because we've got to give up something of ourselves. Take that to an organisational level and you start getting organisations to collaborate mm. where they might have conflicting business models, where they might have conflicting economic drivers, et cetera. You know, it becomes even more difficult because now I'm getting collections of people effectively to collaborate and work together. And, and the mining industry has been very challenged in doing this over the years. Often, unfortunately, I think we take a power position in some of these sort of discussions rather than, you know, a position of equals uh, where we can then, you know, genuinely work through and, and get some of these solutions. Hearing you talk is reminding me of a, a process we went through, Lady, uh, a number of years ago, you probably remember, where we, we started out on our innovation journey with a with an innovation hub to try and encourage people to be open and share their ideas. And Can you share with our listeners a little bit about that journey that we went on? Because we learned a lot mm-hmm. through that process. Absolutely. So our tagline is, we are a modern mind. So we're always trying to walk the talk. So what is that more money look like? And something that we are very uncomfortable inside is like, we want a goalpost to say, when we get here, this is what a modern mind is going to look like. And we never had that. So we always have been experimenting, okay, let's go on and try different things. And one thing that we try was to implement Innovation Hub. So it was a platform and it was cool at the time because it was gamification. So obviously, let's make it fun. Let's make everyone contribute. And the idea was to actually get a platform where anyone from the operation, anyone, a senior level management, anyone even including from uh, executive team were able to actually register the ideas that they have about anything. And it didn't need to be part of the role. And that was with the aim of getting that collaboration, everyone bringing the ideas. So I think we managed that well with that because you got uh, like a digital dollar, so gamification, and then you put an idea and everyone was backing your idea. And then if you got enough backers, then, wow, that's great. You can go to the next stage. And the next stage was putting a little bit of a business case and then so on and so on to the point where, okay, let's get to implement it. But what we learned, Katie, it was that at the end of the, maybe we put it for three years. I don't remember exactly, but It was just before we started COVID. We noticed that we were an amazing ideas. Maybe the quantity was good, but there were two things that we learned from it. And one was the quality. So we were getting a lot continuous improvement ideas, not necessarily ideas that were going to transform the way that we mine. And the second thing was 20% of the idea was implemented or even less. 
and I know many people who, who are listening will relate to this, is say, oh, but I got my own role, so I don't have time to implement this. Um, you know, it's my day-to-day, so this is an extra thing. Uh, I need someone, I need a project manager, I need someone else, I need money. So there was always put on the side, it wasn't a priority in their day-to-day job to actually implement the ideas. So um, then we had COVID, we had the project called uh, Beyond, uh, Project Beyond. The long story short was through that process of reflecting what we learned from this innovation hub, this is where we basically turn the page completely. And this is where I could say that was the genesis of the TAD incubator. We have to do something different. And moving from that continuous improvement where the operation we look after and they do very well. And we need to think about how we are going to to shine in the new world to innovate and mining. And this is where um, the Think and Act Differently Innovator started. Do you think that's common, Michelle, where, where ideas factories almost are common in organisations, but that ability to articulate the value and then run it through to realise it is uh, is lacking? Yeah, look, I, I think so. I mean, it, to some extent what technology has allowed us to do in that idea space is do suggestion boxes on steroids, you know, with about the same resulting outcome, you know, in terms of the percent that's been implemented, et cetera. And in part because, and I love gamification in, in, you know, when you apply it in appropriate sort of spaces and places, you know, suggestion box were gamifications when you gave, you know, 100 buck gift vouchers or whatever for, you know, whatever the idea was. But it, it generally still drives individual idea generation rather than collaborative, diverse, multi thought processes, et cetera idea generation. And so they typically end up being continuous improvement rather than transformational because, frankly, transformational is so hard and it's why, you know, all companies have to partner and collaborate to truly innovate because no one company ever nails any of these things. I mean, even if you look historically and you go, wow, you know, there must be examples from, you know, Amazon or Microsoft or, you know, some of these amazing Google, any of those, you actually scratch the surface of some of those amazing companies that have built out of, you know, nothing and become monsters or, you know, certainly bigger than the whole mining industry, actually, each of them. But, you know, that these are not built on the back of individuals. Whilst we might hold individuals up as, you know, part of that. These are, you know, often collaborative, you know, multi-diverse ideas that are coming together to feed into these things. So so I think, you know, part of that is is the challenge. You know, how do we actually therefore create processes within organisations that have that, those dimensions to it and are not just suggestion boxes on steroids? And then the, you know, the other component though is genuinely how do you create an environment where people feel that continuous improvement is actually part of their day job? It's not on top of their day job. Because, you know, you often you, you get that. You go, well, you know, I'm 127% taken up by the, the work that I'm being asked to do. And so, you know, another thing is just another thing. And so something's going to have to drop off. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of really interesting ideas around and, you know, how much workload should any one role, therefore any one person in a role be? And then how much of a person's time, therefore, should be 
dedicated to continuous improvement. And there's all sorts of different models out there, all the way from the Toyota model through to the Google model, et cetera. But I think there is something to be said around if you really genuinely want continuous improvement, not only how do you drive collaboration and, you know, let alone transformation, but how do you generally drive collaboration? How do you drive the process for creating these great ideas? But then how do you allow people the time to set aside to then, you know, implement some of those those changes? Because even the smallest idea is asking a, a larger group of people to change their behaviour. And if anyone here has tried to uh, to even stop a habit, I once, over 20 years ago, used to smoke. And the hardest thing was not the physiological quitting of smoking. It was now what am I going to do with my hands? And so I had, you know, literally had to retrain myself to do something different with my hands. It's the same thing when we're asking people to do something different that they have done in their work environment a hundred times a day, you know, once a day for the last three years, whatever it might be, this is now a habitual way of behaving. So, you know, to, to then get people to do something different, you know, it takes some time, it takes some effort. Can, can I share something, Katie? Of course you can, lady. This is a personal experience. What, what I learned, and it was harder for me moving from engineering role to the HR role, was to change the, the mindset uh, and annoying. So when I was when I was in FIFO, uh, I was hired for that, right? So you have some knowledge. So this is what you are paying for. So you must have all the answers. And yes, okay, you give you the project problem, you find solution, and you get it done. When I moved HR, obviously I wanted to apply what was successful in my previous role to that, and none of that worked at all. And it was because uh, I was trying to, in my previous role, it was about simple and complicated problems, right? And then when I moved to HR, it was about that complex problems, what is about behavior. When it's about how do you raise a child? That's complex. There are no book that tells you how to do it. There is no one solution and everyone will do it different. And it's not right or wrong answer, right? So you just have to try and error. So the most uncomfortable thing was about not knowing. And he said, well, I have been paid for this uh, and knowing the answer. How do I go about this? So this is where, you know, you have to collaborate and you have to change the mindset. But for me, the most important thing was after doing a master of project management, it was about plan, 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 plan. Then you start implementing. For me, it was you plan, finish the planning, and you implement. So you don't go back to review and replan again or review or anything like that. It was done. It was, if a new idea is coming, like, too late. <laughs> so that um, mentality of don't get uh, perfection on the way of progress, like actually make progress, experiment. It doesn't have to be a final product. It has to be minimal by your product. That took me a while to me to actually learn it. And understand that actually, okay, let's plan it. 80% is okay. I'm okay with that. I, I have, you know, look at the risk. I can go with this. Let's start implementing and then go back again and replan it. So that has been now probably we, we do it in a rhythm and in a systematic way, but it has to be a conscious effort to do that and let it go that it's not perfect and progress is better than perfection. So when you first joined Think and Act Differently Lady, you must have felt like we were changing every day. Yeah, that word of pivot and changing and new things. And it was, yeah, but I have to say that we have already kind of worked on that. So 
it was to come in an environment that it was actually being applied and being seen that it was done. Michelle, I think you were going to jump in there. I, I was. I was just going to build on that because I think, Glenny, you bring up a, a, an important point. You know, again, I think one of the challenges that we have as engineers is that we learn to design things, you know, and, and so we've got this design um, and then almost feel that any deviation from that design now is a potential imperfection or, you know, something. And and I think one of the things in innovation, especially practical innovation that you're implementing into an organisation is we've got to remember that we're implementing it into groups of people and that we're asking them to change their behaviour. And I think that this issue around to have choice is to give people their humanity. And certainly when I've run engineers and groups of engineers when we've been designing things is, you know, design a certain component of it and, and be clear what are absolute non-negotiables and why, but then allow for especially, you know, the user component of that to be completely designed or co-designed by the users and, and to be okay with that. You know, if the buttons need to be on the left or the right or it needs to be different colours or you need to have big screens versus small screens or whatever it might be. And I guess now we talk about it as being, you know, configurable designs. But I think that is a very important component. And I think this is where not only mining organisations like ourselves trying to implement, but also our supplier organisations need to get a lot better. And I think this is where, you know, some of our supplier organisations can look at, as we can, look at you know industries such as the car manufacturing industry, which I think have done a phenomenal job in terms of really understanding their user base and giving their user base a lot of discretion. I mean, I, I am old enough to remember when, you know, you used to buy a Holden Commodore and it came basically in two colours, or not quite two colours, but not much more, <laughs> maybe four <laughs> colours that year, uh, white being the predominant one. And, you know, everything was standard, standard AM radio, standard whatever it might have been. And, AM and, radio gave it away more yeah, than well, the exactly. I know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, do they have radios in them now? I don't even know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but now you, you go and look at a Toyota um, assembly line and every single car is different. It comes off that assembly line. It's got, you know, custom colours and custom seats and custom, you know, everything else you could choose and you can do it on an app now which is even scarier but this ability for end users to really customize and choose and make choices I think is fundamentally important to us getting some of these changes done rapidly into organizations because again we've got to move at speed the world is changing significantly faster than our industry. Our industry has to speed up its rate of change. You want to speed up the rate of change, you've got to give people more choice, which means as engineers and as, as practitioners, we've got to actually give some of that choice up to move fast. Well, the minute we want to move fast and we want to get something done, our industry is really good and it's probably not unique to mining, but we're good at putting KPIs and performance hurdles and things in place uh, that mean we can make sure we're doing it and we're measuring our success along the way. Is that helpful? Some things are helpful, absolutely. So, you know, I still do have a bit of that engineering in me that says, (laughs) you know, what what gets measured gets done for sure. I think having too narrow a set of metrics... Uh, I think becomes very unhelpful. You've got to be thinking broad and, and especially when it comes to stakeholder value creation metrics um, and what does that really mean and those trade-offs because that's, you know, that's where the, some of that complexity comes from. And I think being really thoughtful about risk 
Because, you know, often we throw a lot of those performance hurdles or metrics up or whatever it might be to try to manage risk. But I think as an industry, we think about what we're doing currently as being inherently not risky and anything that we might do differently as being inherently risky. And I think that is a fallacy that is preventing us from moving forward. So, you know, I think now a tr- hopefully a trite example, but uh, I most likely will have people go, no, man, that's a really important example, is, you know, you would have to think if you're putting diesel trucks into your mind site today, that that is an inherently risky thing, that potentially in the life cycle of that truck, some of your stakeholders are going to change their thoughts radically on whether diesel trucks are an acceptable thing or not, or diesel engines in your generators in your powerhouses or any of that sort of stuff, that that is an inherently much more risky thing today than it was five years ago, two years ago, 10 years ago. Whereas, you know, putting in alternative energy sources is inherently less risky for those same reasons. And I, and I think it's thinking about that risk differently, because what I do see to your question is us risk rating things. And you can risk rate things and make anything a bad choice. And so I think it's really, you know, how do we think about some of those risks? How do we genuinely compare them? You know, how do we think about technology risk? How do we think about project risk, et cetera? Um, I think that's where we've really got to be much more thoughtful uh, as an industry. So, Lady, it's it's interesting hearing Michelle talk about risk. And, and I know you're very passionate about risk and have mentioned it a few times today. If we're going to use risk so regularly to understand decision-making and performance, how do our people get the experience and build the capability to actually be able to quantify that risk in the work that they're doing? I think one thing to to look risk differently now is that previously we were taking as the best line what we do every day, that was the best line, and anything on the top of that to deviate, to do differently was a risk. I think what we have done, which actually has helped us stretch quite a lot and make us uncomfortable, was that your target, which is not your best line, is where you start managing the risk from there onwards, if it makes sense. So if we were going to produce, I would say 1,000 tons uh, per year, that was, you know, this is what probably we can do very well. Obviously, these numbers are not, um, don't quote me on them. But the target for the year is 120,000 tons of copper per year. This is where anything on 120 up, this is where we started looking at the risk. It's not from 100 to 120. You don't look at risk because you take that as a granted that you are going to achieve that target. And this is what we have been looking at in, in the business planning process or when you do planning for the year. So... In order to learn that capability of risk, I think the easiest way is, which always I advocate for, is hands-on, definitely, because sometimes it's easy to get in a room, put the problem, and start getting the risk out in a paper, and then put in a register, and that's probably, uh, you don't look at again in... The old filed-away risk folder. register that no one exactly. looks at. Dangerous. And we can see in the Excel is 100 risks, and then... Uh, you get system on the top of that. So the capability is, it can be built actually day to day, where actually every time that you're looking at something, a project, an idea and everything, you bring a risk in the front of the table. And risk is not only, as we say, it's not only threat, it's an opportunity. So, okay, yes, what are the threats of this? Always there is a threat and there are 
engineers sometimes we are catastrophic and, and we can say, you know, this is, it, it can go wrong, but actually it is changing the mentality of what, how we can actually do better in this. And that is an opportunity and focus. I mean, it's a little bit cliche, but that possibility, okay, what is the opportunity here? So looking at risks and opportunities is something that we do a lot. And then having that opportunity to, when is that done? I think the best is to reflect and review the process. So it's about the process, but the process has to be systematically embedded in the way that in a meeting, uh, in the when we do the retros, when we do things like that. I think this this is the best way to actually increase the capability because you can hear from everyone and you listen, you listen to learn from others and you listen obviously and you learn from mistakes as well. And the more we learn, the more we listen, the more we collaborate. It almost sounds like risks are easier to control on the threat side and and realize the opportunity uh, by surrounding ourselves with that capability and experience. Michelle, what about yourself? So look, I, I think Lady has hit on a really important point, which is often when we think about risks, we think about the threats. So what could go wrong here? And, you know, I think this is part of this pivot that we need to make as an industry is not just to dwell on the threat side of risk, but also the opportunity side of risk. And I think that's, you know, especially true when we're talking about innovation, we're talking about different technologies and what they can do to sort of support or change the way we go about doing things. Because I think, you know, a lot of them do open up and and a lot of the things we can think about and do differently is around leveraging some of those opportunities. And, And I think, you know, we then start doing the risk rating quite differently, I think, when we reflect on those opportunities. So some really interesting crossroads here. I'm going to ask you each a question to leave with our listeners some advice. I want to start with you, Michelle. I know that even I have learnt thousands of better ways to present ideas and cases since working with you. What would be your advice to people working in technology and innovation teams when they've got this burning, passionate idea and they want to present it to their leaders or to their business and hope to get some support for that project? So the starting point is to remember that your audience is most probably going to be time poor, technology inept, um, not understand all the great things about your technical solution and really want to know what is in it for for them, for their department, for their organisation. And, and so um, I think one of the, the biggest challenges that most of us in technology suffer from is that we love the technology. We, we love the idea. We love the, you know, this new thing. And, and we want to tell people about it. So it, it's trying to reverse that around and go, look, you know, the technology is fantastic. It's an enabler. It's, you know, these ideas are great. But at the end of the day, it's the value that it's going to drive for others that is the important thing that's really going to get people's attention and people's, you know, listening to what you, you've got to say. And I'm not just talking about MPV, IRR type value. I'm really talking about, you know, what is the value of this idea across a number of different metrics. So, you know, it, it could be about carbon reduction. It could be about how engagement is going to in- increase, et cetera. But really start with what is the value this will deliver? Because that's what then hooks people in and they go, ah, oh, I want more engaged people. I want to reduce carbon. You know, that's something that's important to me and, and important to my organisation. So I, I would keep it brief 
if you can use um, the one thing I've, I've recently got very excited about is pictorial metric sort of ideas. You know, we like numbers because it gives us a, a, a basing and we like pictures because it tells us, you know, literally a thousand words. So if you can use those sort of infographics to try to get your, your message across, short, brief, what's the value, how are we going to get there? And, you know, the technology is at the very back end, maybe even in the appendices, because at the end of the day, often that's a much later conversation. It really resonates with me uh, what you say about keeping it brief. Uh, for those that know me, I, I love many words and often too many words. So working out what are those words that matter certainly make a huge difference. Lady, I, I'm going to chuck a different question to you to wrap up with. I love that your journey has come through from operations into human resources and now in, into technology and you've got this beautiful fusion of, of experience. For anyone that's listening today that is working on company culture, development programs, things that really get into the experience of the workforce in, in a company. What would be your advice to them if they're thinking they want to try and influence the innovation culture in their organisations? I think I can answer that question from two angles, from a workforce perspective and maybe from a leader perspective. In terms of leader perspective or organisation, we are time poor as well. Everyone is time poor. And also we're trying to uh, manage the work-life balance and things like that. So it's, uh, and you got your day-to-day -to -day job. So we got, you know, 70% to do day-to-day -day job. And there is, let's say, that 30% to do something, something different, right? And in that 30%, it could be what we said before, time to innovate, time to ideas, things like that. But within that 30%, we have to consider development, development of our people and developing of ourselves as a leader to actually be able to influence and support that innovation. Everyone knows this, but if the leadership team, the CEO doesn't believe or support innovation, then the likelihood that the company is going to be innovative is very, very low. What I'm trying to say is that we have to give time, which is, I, I don't have the answer how. We have to give time with it, our day-to-day -day job to do our thing, to think about development and to think about innovation. I know Google trying to do it. They, okay, take one hour of your day, have that beautiful, colorful uh, seat, and you can brainstorm and think about ideas. I think for some companies, Facebook will work. For others, didn't work. Because sometimes the best ideas come when you less expect them. Sometimes actually when you're doing something or when you are in the shower, when you're driving, or when you are actually sitting on the machine uh, looking in the excavator, like, oh my God, something just, you know, I let the light bulb. So it is something complex. With complexity, there is no a silver bullet. There is no one answer. There is no one solution. But something that I would say from my, my own experience, and this is not tested or neither a patented <laughs> it no is patents that, no? yeah no patents it is that development and also uh, innovation has to be part of our day-to-day -day job um, and taking time because that are the two things when the, the pressure comes is put on the side and innovation drives, gro drives growth and the growth helps us keep alive in the industry and the development the development actually 
it helps us to be better, right? So if we are going to be, we cannot be the same that we were like one year ago as a leaders. We, we have to develop and be better at something, you know, listening to them. So as a workforce experience, it takes a lot of courage and bravery to actually speak up if you have an idea where you say, like, how can I get my idea or how can I get that something that is burning here that I think I want to get experimented. It takes a lot of courage and bravery to say that. So I would say my recommendation very humbly is to actually find someone within the organization. Hopefully it could be your leader that you feel safe to talk and actually soundboard it and help you to build a business case in order to present it in a way that is brave, generate that value and things like that. Because we cannot leave those ideas on the table because I'm pretty sure that is a lot of value for a community, for our go for the for the government, for the employees, uh, suppliers, the customer stakeholders. We are up against time, but I wanna say a massive thank you. It's been important for me today to reflect on my own development journey since I've been working in technology and innovation and that courage and self-growth I've experienced. And I encourage all our listeners to do the same. A huge thank you to Lady Alfredo, Insights and Capability Transfer Lead at Think and Act Differently, and Michelle Ash, Executive Advisor, Chair, and our Technology Extraordinaire for your words of wisdom advice today. It's been fantastic to have you here. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. It's been, uh, it's been heaps of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for having us today. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Mining Podcast. To find out more about the amazing work the TAD team do, please head to Think actdifferently.com.au This episode was recorded on Ghana land at Podbooth Studios, studio engineer Rory Noak, and produced and edited by Lauren McWhorter.